0: Hey, this is Brian sorkin REF RUF campus minister at Ole Miss. RUF has existed on campus at Ole Miss for over 40 years now, and we are here by God's grace to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve His church in the world. In other words, we long for people, students, to embrace the good news of Jesus, but also see the beauty and necessity of the church. And look, we only do this once a year because the podcast is and always will remain free but 100% of the money it takes for RUF to be on campus all year round comes through the generous support of churches and individuals like you. So due to the nature of seasonal giving, historically a large part of our budget is raised during the month of December. And so I just wanted to ask, if you, a listener, want to partner with us and support the work of RUF Ole Miss, you can easily do so uh, by just going to www.ruf.org slash Ole Miss, ruf.org slash Ole Miss, and just designate your giving to Ole Miss. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for praying for us, supporting us. God really is at work. Now on to the last RUF of the 2018 fall semester. Matthew 1, 1 1-6, verse 16. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Skipping down to verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. If you've never been to RUF, I really am, sorry, you probably have no idea what just happened, because uh, we, really, we really do want, if this is your first time, to feel like you're not on the outside, we want this to be a place where... Yeah, you can show up no matter what your week looks like or the doubts you've had and work through them uh, and see uh, who Jesus is. So, but, Carter, that was hilarious. That was spot on. Um, all right, so what What we did this whole semester, we walked through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we finished, and tonight, not only does tonight feel like Christmas, we made it snow today, so it feels like Christmas even more so. And uh, we're going to look at this genealogy that Caroline read for us. Um, and here's why. Um... Think about what happens when you, when you meet somebody for the first time, whether it's uh, a, a new group of people that you hope to be friends with, or even or even, maybe it's a job interview, but something that you want to get in with. What you do is you put your best foot forward. You uh, maybe name drop you know, some friend that you hope uh, connects you with this person. Uh, maybe you laugh at a joke that normally you wouldn't think is funny, but you just want to you know, put up that impression that I'm with you. Uh, if it's a resume, you, you just inevitably, you, you erase anything to, that's bad and you just include what's good. Because if I can put the best foot forward, maybe that'll get me on respectable terms with, this, with these people, with this job, and I'll get in. Back in first century Israel, in Jesus' day, your resume, the way that you presented yourself to the world, it was your genealogy. Because in first century Israel, your family was everything. It was a familial culture. And so in the same way, what you would do is if there was anybody that you were ashamed of or didn't want to be associated in your genealogy, you just erased them from it. And you, would, you identified yourself as, whatever, Frank, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. That was, that was your resume. What's really fascinating to think about is Jesus, who is God himself, He is the only person in the history of the world that actually controlled his genealogy. He got to pick exactly who was in his family line. And I don't know about you, but if I picked my family line, I would associate myself with all kinds of powerful, cool, and influential people. But what Jesus does is he he puts in his genealogy honestly people that we would find embarrassing. That we would say, that's not your best foot forward. And why does he do that? Why does Jesus get introduced to the world in the New Testament by saying, these are my people? And my suggestion is it must show you something about the heart of Jesus and what he's like. And so all I want to do is walk through four of the names in the genealogy, and they're all female. Which that in and of itself in Jesus' day was startling. Because real, this isn't right, but in Jesus' day, females were not seen as equal as men. And so you would not include females in your genealogy, but Jesus does. He proudly puts them in and says, they're mine. And so, um, let, me, uh, let me pray for us before we talk about this. Father, uh, thank you for your word, for uh, even a genealogy uh, that to show us the heart of Jesus. I pray, uh, no matter what our life looks like, that we would believe uh, that you're good uh, and that you will receive us. In your son's name, I pray. Amen. All right, so here's the four names. I think I talked about this at Greek Night of Worship like a year ago or something. We're going to expand on it. Uh, and uh, a guy named Ricky Jones, a friend of mine, helpful in this. But first of all, if you had your Bible open, I, I know the, the sheet is wrong, but verse 3, you read about this woman named Tamar. All right, Tamar, her story is in Genesis 38. It is, maybe you could say it's R-rated. It's, but basically, here's all you need to know. That Judah has a son named Ur, all right? And Ur is just described as wicked. He's so wicked that the Lord ends his life, and so Tamar is left a widow, which in those days was really scary. And so the next husband up marries her. And what you find out in in just these two verses is that her next husband is even more wicked and uses and abuses Tamar. He just uses her sexually. uh, Belittles her, and so he gets struck down, actually. So Tamar, at the end of Genesis 38, is left twice widowed, used and abused, and she has been abandoned and cast off even by the family that's supposed to take care of her. So she's left defenseless. She is in such a desperate place that what she does at the end of Genesis 38 is she dresses up like a prostitute and she seduces her father in law to sleep with her. And after they sleep together, she becomes pregnant and she has twins. And it is those twins, one of them, that Jesus puts in his genealogy. That Jesus comes through the line of that one. And Genesis 38 is one of those passages that has to make you say, what in the world? Like a woman who was horribly sinned against, used and abused, who almost every circumstance in her life was against her. And she's incredibly desperate. And Jesus proudly puts her in his resume and says, yeah, she's mine. I want to be identified with her. Why would Jesus do that? Because Jesus is telling us to not doubt the love of Jesus just because you've been horribly mistreated and sinned against. As awful as it is. See, that might look, if you've been if you've really been abused or sinned against, I recognize this can sound simple, but you know this, if you've been hurt if you've been sinned against, if the reality of that pain and darkness, what it can make you think is this: If others treat me this way, then God probably thinks of me this way as well. If people that were supposed to protect me and care for me uh, hurt me, if you were abused as a child, uh, if you were abandoned by good friends, then you think there's no way I can be a child of God. Those two can't go together. It makes you feel worthless. Or if your parents never told you they were proud of you, it makes you conclude there must be nothing to be proud of. And Jesus proudly puts Tamar and his family. He introduces himself to the world to tell you there is no amount of being sinned against, no amount of rejection from others that means that you have to be rejected by Jesus. That's not who Jesus is. That's the lie of being sinned against. Look, for me... The black church in, in America, the African-American church in America, it's, an, it's incredibly encouraging to me. Here's why. If you step back and think about it, 150 years ago in American history, here's what you had. You had slave owners, some of them who were actual Christians, and massive blind spot in them, right? Slavery is evil. It's awful. It's, they, they horribly treated people. But think about this. You still had slaves who were horribly treated by their masters, that ended up believing the religion of their masters, and formed this thing called the African American Church that 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 is still going and is still beautiful. How does that happen? How do people believe the God of their masters? He must be good. He must can heal being sinned against. He must be a great savior. And that's the message of the genealogy. The the message of Christmas is that Jesus is coming into this broken and dark world. The one who is worthy of all praise. The one who is love itself. And he will not be received. He will not be loved as he's deserved. But instead he'll be rejected. He'll be lonely. He'll suffer. He'll be abused by people that should have known who he is. He will be despised. He will be laughed at, spit upon. And at the end of his life he will hang on a cross. A victim... Of verbal, social, and physical abuse. And they'll laugh at him. Why? To bring Tamar's of the world into his family. That's who Jesus is. You who have been really hurt and sinned against. Jesus knows you. He knows what it's like to be you. And he's not far off, but he's near. And he identifies himself with you. And he offers to heal you. And if others have shamed you, I'm just telling you, like, Jesus is not ashamed of you. And you've got to know that. If you're united to him, what God thinks of you is what God thinks of Jesus. And he says, I'm well pleased with you. And so first of all, he puts Tamar in his genealogy. Just shows there's no amount of being sinned against that keeps you from the love of Jesus. Next woman in the genealogy, Rahab, verse 5. Rahab shows up in Joshua 2. Here's all you need to know about Rahab. She lived in the land of Canaan. Canaan was so wicked, like a place where people were sacrificing children, that God says this has to stop. This place has to be judged and wiped out. Inside Canaan, there's this city called Jericho, where Rahab lives, which is probably the worst city in Canaan. It's so bad and wicked that God essentially tells his people, I don't even want y'all to interact with that place. I'm just going to take it down. Just blow your horn. I'll destroy it. Rahab is a prostitute in the worst city, in the worst land in the world. That's who she is. My guess, my guess, is Rahab has lived a more immoral life than anybody in this room. Probably. Why? Because usually people with Rahab's kind of record, this isn't good. It should be the opposite. Usually people with Rahab's kind of record do not show up at RUF. They should, because Jesus is for them. They're just not here. But why would Jesus, who is in control of his lineage, arrange it so that Rahab would be his? Because Rahab gets absolutely what she does not deserve. She gets sheer grace, sheer forgiveness, and gets put in the line of Jesus. And what Jesus announces to the world his coming is that your sinful past does not have to keep you from the love of Jesus. It doesn't. And the lie that all of us at some extent believe is this. I am a slave of my past. That there are things that I've done my freshman year in college. or things I've done this week that will haunt me and they will never go away. There are things that uh, fill in the blank. There's things that you've done with your body that you hope no one knows about. The abortion that you had. The suicidal thoughts that you had about yourself. Things that you think about other people. just Things that you just cannot seem to quit doing that you wish would stop. When you look at yourself in those moments, there is shock, there's disappointment, and we just assume that the Lord of this universe is disappointed in us as well. And Jesus puts Rahab in his genealogy to say, no, I'm not. You are not a slave to your past. The Apostle Paul says, you are a new creation in, in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus comes for people with awful past and he covers it with himself. Actually, I actually heard this one last week. Uh, I think it was back in the 80s. Uh, there was a very famous pastor, who was president of great campus ministry called InterVarsity. It's still around. Um, his name was, we'll call him Gary, uh, but you can look this up. And uh, at the height of being president of InterVarsity, he was secretly having an affair. Finally, that affair comes out, you know, it's discovered. Uh, He's humiliated. He resigns. His family, obviously, publicly humiliated. He leaves the spotlight. He continues to trust Jesus. He just kind of disappears for a while, works through repentance, believes Jesus' forgiveness. I'm talking like years later. You're talking at least a decade later when uh, President Clinton has this uh, scandal with Monica Lewinsky and he's trying to demonstrate that he's sincere about being sorry. He forms this council of spiritual advisors. Gary is one of them. And even Gary publicly, as he is one of Bill Clinton's advisors, you know what he's known as? Like, it, it was like labeled on the TV, adulterer preacher. That's just what he was always known as. That label followed him everywhere. And so, really, years later, finally some magazine asked him about it. They said, hey, honestly, you're always known as the adulterer preacher because you were such a public figure. How, how do you feel about that? Here's what he said. He said, honestly, I don't mind it anymore. I think every Christian should have a name tag that has the thing that they're most embarrassed about written on it, and they just walk around with it. And every Sunday they should go to church, put it on a cross, and realize that Jesus has taken care of it. That's a man who is no longer enslaved by his past. That's a man who gets the gospel. That Jesus takes your past shame. And see, if, you're, if your past continues to haunt you, Christmas is saying this. Look at the manger. Jesus begins his life, God himself, in a feeding trough, sitting in sloth. Why? Because he's already taking what you and I deserve. From birth until death, he is taking what you and I deserve. And he'll take yours too. He will, he will cleanse your past if you don't run from it. If you'll admit it, probably to a close friend, but definitely to Jesus. Bring it out of the dark, and it loses its enslaving power. Jesus puts Rahab in his genealogy to say, there's no amount of past sin that will keep you from me. Jesus loves you. He wants you with your past sin. So you see Tamar. You see Rahab. Next woman that shows up, verse 5, is Ruth. Ruth. Ruth is actually Rahab's daughter in law, which is cool to think about. Ruth is, is incredible. There's a whole book of the Bible devoted to her named Ruth. And um, you can read her story there. Here's the important detail to know about Ruth for tonight she is not an Israelite, she's a Moabite. She was a Gentile. Gentiles in the Old Testament were viewed as those people, the outsiders. In Jesus' day, all these rules had been, been kind of created to make, a, make Gentiles almost in an isolated, outcast hell. Everywhere they went, they felt like a social, religious, and ethnic outsider. And it, everything said, you're unclean, you're, you're not wanted. And Jesus puts Ruth, a Moabite, An outsider, unwanted, in in his genealogy, to proclaim to the world that outsiders are with Jesus. That I want them. I'm like, I say this because, like, Ole Miss is an insider culture, okay? I love this place. I graduated from this place. But it just is. Whether that's a, like, tier system of, like, Greek organizations whether it's who gets the respective positions on campus and who doesn't, whether it's who you're connected, you're just always feeling who's on the inside and who's on the out. And if you're on the end, you're rising up. If you're on the outside, you feel less than. And being put outside, being excluded from places you want to be or people, it just hurts. And it tempts you to think I'm, I'm probably unwanted by the holy, perfect God as well. But see, Jesus is proclaiming in his genealogy, and actually all throughout the Bible, the outsiders are in. The people on the bottom are going to come to the top. The poor in spirit are rich. The last will be first. Jesus keeps reversing everything. Dorothy Sayers is a, uh, she's an old writer. Sometimes she wrote about, she said, you need to imagine a disgruntled people in, in all of world history who have been marginalized, excluded, and on the outside. And they get together and they decide what God or what a Savior would have to experience and look like to be for the outsiders. And he said, here's what would happen. You'd have a person who's undergone racial, you know, discrimination. And that person would say, you know what? If a Savior is going to be for the outsiders, he's got to be hated for his skin color. He's got to be a minority. And then an outcast would step up and say, not only that, he's got to be hated by his own people. And then somebody who's been in the bondage of poverty their whole life would speak up and say, "Uh, yeah, but that kind of savior for the outsiders, he's got to know what it's like to lack resources, to not have the comforts of money and, and ease. He's got to be poor like me. And then somebody that's been falsely accused would speak up and say, he's got to know what it's like to suffer injustice for something he did not do. And a political sufferer would say, he needs to know what it's like to be tortured and killed and nobody cares. And then you have to imagine in walks Jesus, a Jew oppressed by Romans, thought to be an illegitimate birth because his mom was an unwed mother, cast out by his own people. He's so poor, he says he has no place to lay his head, grew up most of his life probably without his dad because Joseph died at an early age. He's despised by his own people. He's betrayed by friends. He's falsely accused, arrested, and tortured. And he's killed all because he was right. And most of the world didn't care when he died. That's Jesus. And the message of Christmas is that Jesus, who is the consummate insider, Jesus is God himself inside the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the most important inner ring there is. And he came into this world not born into a place of privilege or power or wealth or cultural influence and connections. He is born to a poor unwed mother named Mary. Mary. And the only people who show up to his birthday are a bunch of outcast shepherds. That's it. That's the only people that are there. And ultimately, he'll go to a cross and he will be excluded by the ultimate inner ring, his heavenly father's. he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he takes on my sin and your sin. And what that means is whether you've been excluded because of race or personality or looks or lack of social or financial resources, or where are from, whatever it is. Jesus came to flip everything upside down. And it's in those places that you'll find Jesus actually meets you, and He's for you. This is the hope. This is who Jesus is. And look, I, I can say this. A prayer I have for RUF often is that RUF will actually feel like Jesus. That at least in here... And in our community, the priorities get flipped. That here, outsiders are insiders. And you can judge whether that's happening. That's what we're praying for, because that will feel like Jesus. And then lastly, there's Bathsheba. Verse 6. It's really interesting, actually. If you look at the genealogy, her name actually isn't used. It just says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Which means David fathered a son by another man's wife. That's what Scripture wants you to know. Matthew emphasizes that point. So look, you might not be familiar with the story. This is back in 2 Samuel 11. But David is the king of Israel. And instead of being with his armies out fighting, he stays back in the comforts of his palace. And he's out on his rooftop and he sees Bathsheba, which is his friend's Uriah's wife. He lusts over her. He uses his power to bring her into his palace. He sleeps with her, and she ends up pregnant. When he discovers she's pregnant, instead of repenting, he tries to cover it up. And he uses his power to kill his best friend Uriah so that he can then marry Bathsheba, and people will think that it's his own son. son. That's King David. And hear me. King David is the most righteous king in Israel's history. King David wrote like half the Old Testament, okay? King David was called a man after God's own heart, and he loved God unto his death. King David was a Christian. And I can only speak for myself, King David was a better Christian than I am, okay? Probably you. He wrote half the Old Testament. But while he was a believer, he made a complete mess of his life with adultery and murder. Just think about this. Like David had lots of children, tons of kids. Why did Jesus put the moment of David's biggest failure, a child from his relationship with Bathsheba, and why not one of his other wives? Man, because like I'm so grateful this is here. Because Jesus in his genealogy is saying, here's the really good news. Your sins and failures after you're a Christian will not separate you from his life. They won't. They can't. And that's what I think we really struggle with. Because a lot of people talk about past sin. A lot of people even talk about being sinned against. And we'll talk about sin out there in culture. But rarely do we hear testimonies from people that we're willing to talk about present struggle with sin. Because we just don't think Jesus shows up in that. We say this in REF all the time. We want it to be a safe place to work through doubts. A safe place to fail and to struggle. Because that's what Jesus is like. And if you miss the message of Bathsheba, you're in danger. Because what you will think is this. God loves you because you're a good person. And that's just a lie. God God died for you, forgave you of your past sins, and what you think is now he's watching me. And if I mess up or when I mess up, his love and favor is dictated by my performance. And that is a satanic lie. Jesus' love for you is finished. It's because of what Jesus has done. And what that means is, hear me, Christian, when you were wasted on the weekend and you slept through church, Jesus does not accept you any less, He does not love you any less, and He's not ashamed of you. He's just not. I'm not saying He approves of that. I'm not saying, he's... But His favor towards you is not dictated by your performance. When you realize you're a complete hypocrite, Telling people about the importance of Jesus and you, look, and you walk through four days and you haven't even thought about him? Jesus does not love you any less, I'm telling you. Uh, when your addictions to drugs or body image or porn, when those still follow you even though you're a Christian, Jesus is not ashamed of you. He doesn't love you any less. He still loves to call you his. You can just get when you feel like four different people because you act like four different people around four different groups. Jesus isn't ashamed of you because the heart of this genealogy, the heart of Christianity and Christmas, is Jesus, the God who lived an absolute perfect, pure and righteous life, and then He died, forsaken by God because He's covered in our sin and shame. And what He cries out is, "It is finished." It's a cry of victory. That everything that needs to be done to save me and you has been accomplished by Jesus. And so being saved means trusting in His work. So that all the guilt of my past, present, and future sin, it's gone. And Jesus' perfect obedience covers me so that today, tomorrow, and, and next day I'm covered by His performance. This is who Jesus is. He came for people who have been sinned against. He came from people with huge past sinful records. He came from people marginalized and excluded. He came from people who still struggle with sin after they're Christians. I don't know what you think Christianity means tonight, but a Christian is not somebody who gets their life together and does amazing things for God. A Christian is someone for whom God does great things for. Jesus is a God of grace. And that's, maybe for the first time, you're hearing why verse 16 They say His name is Jesus. Because the Lord of this universe takes on human flesh and He's known. Jesus means the Lord saves. The Lord saves people who have been sinned against. The Lord saves people who have been broken and are messed up. And Jesus is not ashamed of them. And if you'll just put down your resume and trust Him, whether that's the first time or the thousandth time, you will realize... He's good. The caution is this. If we just walk through the categories and none of those apply to you, I'm telling you, you're the one in danger. It is the self-righteous that miss Jesus, not the needy. The upside-down nature of Jesus is this. He says to the world, I identify with people who don't deserve it. My love goes to people who squander my love, and I love to be identified with sinners who don't even appreciate what I've done for them. That's who I put on my resume. And it's actually only people like that. Which means the way to come to Jesus is to drop your resume and believe that he's the Savior of sinners. So I'm with this. There's a pastor in California that tells about, um, true story, he played football in high school, and his high school coach he loved, he's a great coach, but just kind of was a pagan, honestly. Let that be known. Could not care less about God, about Jesus. Treated people pretty harshly, but, you know, great coach. People loved him. Uh, And he actually kept a relationship with him all through his life. And this coach got into his 80s and got very sick and ended up in the hospital. and And he'd been told he only had a few weeks to live. And so this pastor goes to visit him in a hospital. And as they're talking, he's literally losing the ability to speak. This pastor looks at him and says, Coach, I want you to know because I love you. You're like the thief on the cross. You've rebelled against Christ your whole life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. He loves you. And they talked a little bit, and he left. He comes back three days later to visit him. And the coach cannot even speak anymore. All he has is a clipboard. And when he sees this pastor walk in, he gets a smile on the face. He writes on the clipboard. And here's what the, here's what the message says. What can I do for our Lord Jesus Christ? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He'd been converted. And this pastor looked at him, and said, here's what he said. I love this. He said... Coach, the Lord Jesus is fine. You don't need to do anything for him. Why don't you just let him do for you in these last few days? That is so hard for us to believe. Just let Jesus do for you. But that's the message of Christmas. Jesus is better than you thought. His grace is bigger and better than anything you put up next to it. He says, I come for the messy, the unfaithful, the hurting. Because that's the only people that exist. Will you just see the upside-down beauty, upside beauty of Christmas? You can trust He's good. You really can. Unto you, a Savior is born. That's an invitation. Let's pray.